How are you today? Good. I know if you're in the first couple rows, I should probably give you like a warning. There should be like signs on the chairs that says Joe's going to be really close to you today. Um, so I just apologize to you guys in the front row. I'll try not to spit on you. Um, when I spit up there, it's no problem. But when I spit here, it's a, it's a tough day. Um, we've been studying, for those of you who are with us for maybe the first time today or you're an out-of-town guest, I know we have some of those because of the dedications this morning. We have been studying the letter of Ephesians since January, and we are at the halfway point. And the first three chapters of Ephesians have been absolutely awesome. And I don't mean the preaching, I mean the text, God's Word, has been awesome. And let me just do a little review of what we learned so far. All right, like every good teacher, you want to review with your students, and I know you're not my students, but you get the idea. You want to review with your students what you've learned in the past to bring them up to what's going to be said in the present. So here's Ephesians, the first three chapters on, uh, on jet fuel. In chapter one, Paul taught us about all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, how we have been chosen for adoption into his family, that we have been redeemed, that means to be bought back out of our slavery to sin, and we've been forgiven, and that we have been sealed, we have been given, we have been marked with the Holy Spirit. In chapter two, we learned that we used to be dead in our sin, bad news. And we were alienated from God. More bad news. But because of God's grace to us, through Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to him through faith because of his grace. That's good news. But we were also told that because of the death of Jesus, we are not only reconciled to God, we have been reconciled to one another. Through the cross, Jesus Christ made peace between Jews and Gentiles. Or to put it another way, through the cross, Jesus has torn down all of the ethnic barriers between us, and in the church he has created a new man, a new humanity expressed in God's people. And then in chapter 3, as you know, for the last three weeks, we've been looking at Paul's prayer for the church, and we have been learning how we can grasp the wide, long, high, and deep love of Christ. And here's what has been tough for me as a preacher. Since January, I haven't had any biblical reason to give you something to do. Like I have not been standing up here telling you to do stuff, right? Because the text has not told us to do anything. Like sometimes you'd leave and you'd be like, God is awesome. And that's how you're supposed to leave. For the first three chapters of Ephesians, you are supposed to come into this place, hear the incredible things that God has done for us through Jesus Christ, and then you're supposed to go home and celebrate that, and that is supposed to be transforming your heart. Until you get to chapter 4, when we have some work that has to get done. The second half of the book are commands. They're telling us what we have to do. But it's not what you have to do to gain God's approval. Here's why this is important. The letter of Ephesians is a perfect illustration about how you and I are supposed to think about the Christian life. The first three chapters are all about what's been done for us. The final three chapters are all about how we are supposed to live in light of what has been done for us. The Christian life is not a plan for behavior modification. Living for God, the commands of God, are always obeyed in response to what God has done for you. So starting today, 
We're going to be looking at things that God has commanded us to do through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And frankly, you can't do them and I can't do them without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But you must know that our obedience to the commands we are going to study for the rest of this series must not be fueled by guilt or fear or manipulation. They must be fueled. Your obedience must be fueled by the mammoth amount of grace we have already received from Jesus. So here's what you're supposed to do. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord then, or maybe that word better translated, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, therefore what? Therefore, in light of everything that's been done for you, all of your spiritual blessings, that you've been reconciled to God, that you've been reconciled to one another because you want to live a life deeply rooted and established in love because of the wide, long, high, and deep love of Christ, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The word Paul actually uses in Greek is walk. To walk according to your calling in a way that is worthy of the calling you have received. For the Apostle Paul, this idea of walking is a metaphor for the Christian life. Walking is directed, steady, paced. He doesn't say sprint in a way that is worthy. Some of us do that, right? Like You're like, what do you mean by that? Some of us get really on fire for God for about a week. And we're like, I'm going to really go after it, Lord. And we're like, and you're just sprinting after God. And you're like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And you know what? I can do an all-out sprint for about 25 seconds before I need to see my cardiologist, right? Like, I, I am not a sprinter. I have not been blessed with speed. But I know I can walk for a really long time. I could probably walk from here to Alaska, but that's a story for another day. Like, I'm convinced we could walk for a long time. Maybe you would need to stop and camp for a little bit, but you could walk. But if you had to sprint from here to Phoenixville, you couldn't do it. So you need to walk in the Christian life. That means this is a long-term thing. There's a lot of flash-in-the-pan Christianity, right? There's a lot of, I'm going to do this for a little bit. Oh, but you know what? It turns out I really only wanted God to do something for me. I wanted him to make my marriage better. I wanted him to make my finances better. I wanted to make my life better. And once I feel like that's happened or he's not doing that, I'm done with God. But we are supposed to walk worthy of the calling we have received. What's God's call on our life? It's his call for us to come to him, be reconciled to him, belong to him, be transformed by him through faith in Christ and live our lives for him. He says, walk in a lifetime of faithfulness to Jesus. I had this really surprising, deeply spiritual moment this week. Now, this stuff doesn't happen to me all the time, okay? You're like, well, you're a pastor. It's like, hang out with me for 10 minutes. You'll get over it quick. <clears throat> I had this uh, amazing moment. My wife's grandfather, his name is William McClurg, turned 93 this week. His name is Pappy, and he doesn't remember Cheryl anymore. But Cheryl, who is so good at honoring her parents and her grandparents, she just has such a heart of honor and gentleness. She says to the kids around the table, hey, we're going to call Pappy tonight. And we called Pappy, and it's like, Cheryl's like, hey, Pappy, it's, Cher it's Cheryl. Who? Tell me again. Who are you? 
It's Cheryl, Grandpa. Oh, Sherry, okay. Not really sure he knows who she is. And so we sing happy birthday to Pappy for his 93rd birthday. And it was not that great because I was singing. And we get done, and then Cheryl looks at me, and she hands me the phone, and she goes, Joe's going to pray for you now. And I'm like, all right, I mean, I guess that's my role. And so I get the phone in my hands, and I began, I began praying for this 93-year-old man who doesn't remember me. And the reason that I just sensed the Spirit of God just hit me like a truck as I began to pray is because I felt just deep in my soul like, what a privilege to pray for a man who has been following Jesus faithfully, living his life worthy of the call of God for 70 plus years. Pappy was a man of God. He prays for his 20 plus great-grandchildren, his grandchildren, every day by name, even though he forgets who they are. And he's been doing that since he was in his 40s, praying for his family. We would go out to dinner with Pappy, and he would always hand the waitress a track with the gospel message. And in my youthful angst and skepticism, I'm always like, that doesn't work. Like, let's stop doing that, Pappy. Come into the 2000s. Do you know what, though? That man shared Christ with almost everyone he encountered. He was a man of incredible prayer, and until he forgot who he was, every week he would go into different nursing homes throughout western New York, and he would minister to people, sometimes who were younger than he was. He would sing to them, and he would share the gospel with them. And here he is at 93, faithful to the calling he has received. And I thought, when I'm 93, and I don't, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to make it that long, because he worked out every day. (laughs) Not kidding. In his basement, in a jumpsuit, on a trampoline doing push-ups. In dress shoes. Every day, including Christmas. That's why he's 93. I thought about that man, and I was just overcome by that's what it looks like to live a life worthy of your calling not sprinting hard from Jesus to 28 to 35 and then flaming out but walking with Jesus until it's time to see him face to face so that's kind of like a general idea of walk worthy of your calling but what does it actually mean what does it actually look like to live a life worthy of the calling you've received or another way we could say this is, is how is the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming your life in the sense that you're living out the gospel? How do we live out the gospel message in our life? And here's what he says in Ephesians 4 verse 2. This is what it looks like to live a calling that you've received. Be completely, everyone needs to circle completely, or highlight it on your app. Be completely humble. Yeah, not going to happen. And gentle. Some days. Be patient. Whew. Bearing with one another in love. All right. We all get all the feels during reckless love. 
But are we going to be humble, gentle, patient, and bear with one another with love when the music stops and when Monday morning comes and when we're ticked off? Let me be clear about something. I absolutely mean to offend you. Some of you are really nice people, and I say some on purpose. Some of you are really nice, some of you are nice, some of you, we don't usually think nice when we think about you. And in your life, there are moments of humility for the really nice people. Or maybe you don't like being the center of attention, and you are normally a gentle person, meaning you don't hit people and you don't yell. And unless you're stuck in traffic or in a slow-moving line, you are patient. When we read a sentence like this, humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, here's what we think. Oh, I've got a good personality. These are not personality traits. Bless the Lord for my sake. Like, I'm excited about that. This is not my natural personality. Humble, gentle, patient. Struggles with pride can be harsh, rather impatient. Not a personality trait. These are the work of the Holy Spirit in your life as the gospel is taking root. As you understand what Christ has done for you, you will become humble, gentle, and patient, and bear with one another in love. So let's talk about what that means. What does it mean to be humble? Humility is really about how you think about yourself. It's a mindset that can be described as low, low. Not in the sense that you have a low opinion of yourself. That is not humility. Oh, I'm a terrible person. I'm the worst. I never get anything right. Nobody likes me. Wah, 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 wah. That's not humility. That's pride cloaked in self-flagellation. Don't, that's not humility. That's just you need to see a counselor. But rather, humility is you are willing to get low to serve others. As C.S. Lewis famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Think about this. The gospel of Jesus Christ always pushes us out of our self-absorption, something we are all plagued with. We have to learn humility from Jesus. That's our only hope. We have to look to Jesus and learn humility. Where does we learn about Jesus' humility? Beautifully in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. This is what Paul tells us in Philippians about what it means to be humble. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. All right, so how many of us are doing things for ourselves? All of us. Or vain conceit. Do nothing. Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, like it's okay to pay attention to your needs, but also to the interests of others. Like you should have an outward-centered life. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you know why churches fall apart? Do you know why churches get 
divided and fractured because people choose self-assertion and self-promotion over self-emptying humility. It's so painfully easy to stop considering others better than ourselves. But listen, you can't abandon your self-centeredness through an act of your will. You can only become humble by looking to Jesus and joining with the Holy Spirit in his work to transform your heart. You're not going to leave here and be like, I commit to humility. Okay, are you sure? Or do you commit to plead with God to transform your heart? Do you commit to looking to Jesus and saying, look how Jesus lived. Look what Jesus' humility drove him to do. Giving up his life for the good of everyone. Are you willing to do that? Be completely humble. And then there's gentleness. It's the word for meek. Meek is one of those words that we don't use much, so we aren't really sure. What does meek mean? To be gentle or meek is, does not mean, does not mean you are a person who can't stand up for themselves. Being meek does not mean you're passive. A meek or gentle person is someone who is willing to give up their rights for the good of others. Meek people are strong but their strength is under control. And they only exert their strength for the good of others and never for harm and self-promotion. To walk in gentleness is a refusal to be harsh and demeaning towards others. Gentle people don't use anger, passive aggressiveness, or shame to get what they want. Fathers, mothers, is this how you're functioning in your home? Are you using shame, anger, and passive aggressiveness to get what you want? That's always about you and your need for control and never about the work of the Spirit helping you to be gentle. And then there's patience. This word patience, macrothumia in the Greek, means to have a wide and large soul. It means that in relationships, you are willing, catch this, this is shocking. Some of you, like, we, like this is just like, I need you to hear this. To be patient means that in relationships, you are willing to put up with other people's quirks and annoyances. Did you have to say that? Yep. Patient people realize that spiritual growth is a process, and people are changing a whole lot slower than we want them to. I had to do some serious repenting while preparing this message this week when I realized that sometimes even in my own life and my own ministry, I want people to change a whole lot faster than they do. Why? Because we're a results-oriented culture, and we think that people are a project. And we don't trust the Holy Spirit in their lives. We trust our ability to change and fix them. We're radically impatient. Patience does not mean we don't confront sin, by the way. But it does mean we don't write people off who have failed. And usually we write people off who have failed because they have not met our standards or personal agendas. We can be patient only when we recognize that we ourselves are a work in progress. And it took a long time for us to grow and change. And do you know that we are never as far along as we think? 
I love what Eugene Peterson says. He's a He's a pastor, he's an author, he translated the message version of the Bible, the paraphrase. This is what Eugene Peterson says, there are no experts in the company of Jesus. We are all beginners. Just so we know what patience looks like, Paul defines it when he says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Do you know what it means to bear with one another in love? Put up with each other. That's what Paul actually says. What are we supposed to be doing in the church? Eyes here. What are, like the, right, just like, here's the calling of God on your life for the people sitting next to you and all around this room. Put up with them. What? I need to change them. Put up with them. How? In love. What? This is about us as the people of God. This is the church. What do we usually do when there's people we don't like? We change our seat or we change churches? How's that for real talk from the Apostle Paul? Put up with each other. So it looks like we're going to have to grow in humility, gentleness, and patience if we want to actually live like followers of Jesus who are understanding the gospel. And the only way we're going to learn to love others like Jesus is by learning to allow the love of Jesus to both transform and inform our hearts. So I have some hard words I want to share with you, but I wrote in my notes here, be humble, gentle, and patient. So I'm not going to get excited. I'm just going to read this to you with as little passion as possible. Let's be honest with one another. You have not been trained, I have not been trained to be humble, gentle, and patient. In the West, we have an individualistic culture. Here's what you've been told. Being opinionated, speaking your mind, being aggressive and self-assertive, and being ambitious for yourself and your family, because as long as it's for our family, it's okay. We have been told that all of these things are a badge of honor. Self-assertiveness, being aggressive, sharing every opinion you've ever had, speaking your mind, writing a Facebook rant. Do you know that you are not encouraged to live an other-centered life, to give up your rights and patiently love people over the long haul? That is not in the Constitution, but it's in the Scriptures. And that is not the people of America are called to. It's what the people of God are called to. You have been encouraged above all else to look out for number one because no one else is going to. Essentially, we've all been told that living for yourself is not a problem. In fact, that's the American dream. Hopefully I can retire with enough money to do what I want and do my own thing for my own glory and pleasure. Show me that in the scriptures. It's not there. And here's what Jesus said in John chapter 13, 35. It's not up there, but you can look it up later. Jesus said in John 13, 35 that the world will know we actually belong to him by how we love one another. Do you know that's how people are going to know that we're the real thing? How we love. How we love the people in this room. Do you know that actually needs to become an enormous priority for your life as a follower of Jesus? The church is not a place where you come to compare the preaching and worship music here 
at this church to another as if you were comparison shopping at Giant and Wegmans. I hear people talk about church. Oh, they have great worship there. Oh, they have an awesome children's ministry there. Oh, they're really amazing at prayer at that church. Oh, all the gifts of the Spirit, they're in operation there. Man, that church, there's good Bible exegetical line-by-line preaching. The church is where we gather to give our lives to one another. And glory to Jesus Christ. Some of us, and, and I want you to hear this with as much gentleness as possible. But some of us are bored with Christianity because our Christianity is a tool for self-fulfillment. And you will always be bored and angry and frustrated with the church if it's about you. It's only when we humbly and lovingly lay down our lives for one another that the church becomes beautiful to you. Because you stop thinking about me and you start thinking about us. Us. Let's stop thinking about church like a store with goods and services that we want to enhance our lives. And start thinking about the church like a family that we are called to love and lay down our lives for. Is this hard? Oh yeah. Is it messy? Definitely. Is it inconvenient? In every way. Is it magical and romantic like heaven? Not even close. But it's what we're commanded to do. Doing the hard work of loving and serving and caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ is God's call on your life. And without the humility, gentleness, and patience of Jesus Christ flowing through us, we will inevitably become demanding consumers. We're called to something better than that, church. We're called to humility, gentleness, and patience. And that makes perfect sense when you read what Paul says next. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So I urge you to live a life, call, uh, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What does that look like? Be completely humble, gentle, and patient, bearing with one another in love. And then what you need to do is make every effort. That means there's some work to do to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We are called to live in unity. When the church is humble and gentle and patient with one another, it's far easier to be a united church. However, it requires effort. That word, make every effort, means be zealous, be eager for unity. Be eager for it. Let it be a driving passion in your soul. Notice that the command is not create unity. It's to keep the unity of the Spirit. What does this mean? This is so important theologically. That means that unity is not something we can create at this church. It's something that the Holy Spirit has already given to his people. And it's our job to maintain it. We are to do everything we possibly can in whatever roles we have to pursue and maintain the unity of our church instead of fueling division. When tension rises, when disagreements happen, when you get annoyed with other people, that happens all the time in every church under the sun. Rather than stirring things up, 
with overconfident opinions, gossip, aggression, gathering a group of people around you who agree with you, building a little community of like, we're not happy together and we're going to get our way. I mean, that's not even close. We are to encourage and help each other to listen humbly, speak gently, and forgive patiently. That means as leaders and pastors and elders of the church, when there's things that people bring to our attention, we need to be humble, gentle, and patient as we hear things that we could do better. I know those things exist. But there's also a sense of sometimes people complain because it's not about them enough. Sometimes people complain because we're really missing the mark and we need to hear it. You are welcome to express things that you wish were different or concerns that you have. People have done that with me before and so many times they are gracious and kind and just so you know that always makes it easier to hear. But do you know that unity is destroyed by my selfishness and your selfishness? When I'm harsh and when you're harsh. If you're bitter or if I'm bitter, the unity of this church is going to erode. When you are a divisive person, you are working against the Holy Spirit. I don't want to do that. When you are a divisive person, you are taking on what the Spirit is trying to do. And you know what's amazing about the life of our church? We've had long seasons of great unity, and I'm so grateful for that. But the reason we keep coming back to it is because it can disintegrate in a moment if we forget about humility, gentle, patience, and bearing with one another in love. However, what we need to be clear on is that what we are united around. Unity isn't a platitude. It's based on something specific. Churches don't base their unity on skin color, socioeconomics, political affiliations, schooling methods, dress codes, musical style, or who their pastor is. Sometimes you go to a church and everyone has to be a homeschool family in order to belong at the church. Or everyone has to put their kids in a Christian school. Or, or, you know what, we only do public school. Listen, we can rally around everything. Oh, we're all Republicans here. No, we're not. Praise his name. We're all rich here. No, we're not. Praise his name. It's not about our race. It's not about our politics. It's not about our schooling. It's not about how we dress. It's not about if we like the genre of music. Paul tells us what brings us together. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So let me just unpack this for a moment. One body refers to the universal church. All believers make up the church. One spirit is the Holy Spirit who indwells the church and each believer who is sealed with the Holy Spirit when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. The words, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, indicate that all believers, we have a commonness in our hope regarding the future, that we will spend forever and eternity with God in close fellowship with him and one another. That is our hope. Our hope is like Jesus was raised from death. We will be raised from death one day. One Lord refers to Jesus. That's an, the Lord is another name for Jesus in this context. 
Jesus, the head of the church, we're here to worship and gather around Jesus. One faith speaks of our common belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and head of the church. One baptism refers to water baptism, the outward symbol of the inward reality that we have been baptized into Christ. And then one God and Father of all is not some general thing that God is the Father of all people of all times. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all means God is the Father of all who believe in him. We are his children, and he rules and reigns over us as our sovereign, loving Father. Catch this. The unity the Spirit gives to the church is a unity around who God is. That's the basis for our unity. If you want our unity to be based on something different, you will not fit in here. Because we are going to unite around the power of the Holy Spirit living in us making us a body. We are going to unite around Jesus Christ as Lord, identifying with him as the king of our church. And we will unite around God the Father who is over us and in us and in all who believe in him, that we serve a great God. What does this mean? We're Trinitarian in the way we think about unity. We want unity with the Spirit, unity with the Son, and unity with the Father. That's the basis of unity. It cannot be anything else or we cease to be a church and we become a club. I would hate to lead a club. I would love to be part of a church. Unity disintegrates in the church when God ceases to be the center and focus and foundation of our church family. I've been part of churches before that split in half. And when you kind of look back on what happened, and maybe you've been part of churches before that split and disintegrated, here's the reason, no matter what all the other reasons are. God ceased to be the center, and man took over. This is how we're supposed to live our lives in community, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why I think it's so important to be in a connection group. I think it's important to be in a group so you can learn to love like this. Because you know what? You're going to get in group with people who drive you nuts and you're not going to want to go back because it makes you uncomfortable. I've been there. People drive us nuts. This is why it's important to not think of this as a show or a performance. What I'm doing now is a proclamation of God's word. What we do on the stage is worship to God. This is not a concert. I don't want it to become that ever. This is the people of God. And yes, you sit in rows in this room, but when we're the church outside of this room, we love deeply. We love when we gather in homes for our groups. We love when we see one another in the store. We love by picking up the phone and calling someone who we know is having a tough week. We love. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, well, nobody cares about me. I just want to share this gently with you. Who are you loving? See, sometimes we feel like no one's paying attention to us because we're making everything about us. And there are seasons where we need strong support from the body of Christ. But there is never a season where we're allowed to turn inward and make everything about us. 
If no one's paying attention to you, I would ask you, who are you in humbly, gently, patiently bearing with one another in love? Who are you going after? And let me also ask you this. Where do you think it's going to be different? There are no perfect churches. I know all of us, we will have a last day at Spring Valley Community Church. I'll have a last day. You'll have a last day. God will call us somewhere else or we'll die. But, but, what sickens me is how consumeristic we can become. And we don't realize that the people sitting around us, they're not an audience, they're family. That's a radical paradigm shift for some of us today. So what should we do? I finally get to tell you what to do. And what I mean by me is I mean tell you what the scriptures tell you you're supposed to do. I think the first thing we need to do today is ask the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit to help us see where humility, gentleness, and patience is missing from your life. Where is it missing? Where is it missing in your attitude towards people in this church, in your family, in your workplace? You represent Christ. You are urged to live a life of the calling you've received everywhere you go. Where is humility, gentleness, and patience missing from your life? The second thing we need to do is confess that we are not always humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. We need to confess that. Some of us in this room, we need to confess it out loud before the Lord, whether when our service ends or as soon as you sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit that these words are not who you are. And you need to, you need to confess to the Lord like usually we think of sin as like hey I didn't look at a, a, a naked picture this week or I didn't steal anything or I didn't lose my temper at home or you know we just have these real narrow limits about sin but we rarely confess our pride we rarely confess our sin of unforgiveness and bitterness. We rarely confess that we are impatient with people and we have an agenda for people and when they're not following it, we're done. That's disobedience to God. So we need to confess it and we need to turn from it. And then we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember that Jesus was perfectly humble, always gentle, so patient with people, even those who rejected him. And he put up with people. Sometimes we know that Jesus always got upset with the Pharisees, but you know that he was bearing with them in love, consistently showing them their need to repent. Everyone Jesus met with, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. We have to look to Jesus and not just look at his example, but look to his salvation, that Jesus has saved us from a life of self-absorption, harshness, and impatience, and lovelessness. Because he has put his spirit in us, and his spirit produces humility, gentleness, patience, and love. We gotta live it out. 
God has done amazing things for us. And now we have to go out of these doors and we have to love people well, especially the people in this room. Let's pray together this morning before we leave. When I say amen, uh, our service will be over and I'm not gonna say anything else, so I just wanna make a couple announcements. Number one, drop your orange card in the bucket on the way out. Number two, if you have never been to one of our new guest receptions, we would love to meet you. It's gonna be out that exit door to my left, your right. You're gonna go up the hall, you're gonna see some black curtains, and that's gonna start in about seven to 10 minutes. Please stay, we're not gonna keep you long. It's not like another sermon. It's about 10 minutes where we just wanna get to know you, share a little bit more about Spring Valley Community Church and and about what we're about. Please join us there. And then, as always, there'll be people up here, up front, to pray with you before you go this morning. If you have a prayer need of any kind, please let us love you. Let us go to God together and bring your need before him. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share your word this morning. God, I'm so grateful for how practical your word is. Lord, I'm, I recognize that the things that you call us to, sometimes we just want a list of rules but you're still always after our hearts. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, unity, these are all heart issues. Oh God, let the gospel go deep into our hearts and transform us. Holy Spirit, please work in us. Help us to stay open to what needs to change. Help us to see Jesus afresh today. Lord, empower us with your spirit as we live for you this week, living a life worthy of the calling we've received. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. God bless you.